Good evening, and again, welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our New Year's Eve service and celebration. Uh, I'd like to call your attention to your bulletin, the special, special bulletin you have. And on the inside, we have an explanation of why we have um, those in uniform tonight assisting in the communion service. And it's simply our way of acknowledging s- several things. First of all, the freedom which we have as represented by these uniforms, but also the sacrifice that those have made in uniform, which is not completely unusual or not dissimilar to the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made for the entire human race. He goes to the cross to provide us spiritual freedom. And those in uniform have dedicated their lives, and some have even given their lives, so that we might have freedom in this nation. And so that is the reason that we have the uniforms here tonight. Also on our front cover, we have a picture of George Washington, General George Washington, and it happens to be at the crossing of the Delaware. And that will be part of our special uh, message as soon as we finish with the communion service. This evening, as we uh, observe the communion service, as we observe the elements, we have to remember that the elements were designed to remind Israel of freedom as well. Their freedom, of course, came from uh, from Egypt, and they were a little different than what we have here this evening. Of course, for them, it was the lamb. They also had uh, bitter herbs that they would eat. And so there were unleavened bread as well. But they had symbols that reminded them of their history, the history of the nation. And as Israel was given freedom from Egypt and came to the promised land, was being led by... um, Moses, who was also, of course, being led by the Lord, then there was an understanding that they had received this freedom because of what God had done for them. And so tonight, as we observe the communion supper, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, we have that same thought, but it's not for the nation of Israel, but instead it's for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night before he was crucified, changed the Passover meal. And he designated the Passover meal now to be uh, a memorial service for his work on the cross. And so he took parts of the meal that night. And one of the parts that he takes is unleavened bread. Another part, of course, was the cup. The unleavened bread representing his sinless perfection as he lived his life here on earth and as he went to the cross. And then the cup, of course, the red beverage, reminds us of his blood. And his blood, of course, reminds us of his spiritual death on the cross, his separation from God the Father at the time when his Father imputes the sins of the world to him. 
And for three hours, he is on the cross, enduring not just a few sins, but the sins of the entire world. And that occurs for three hours. And at the conclusion of three hours, he says it's finished. And his comment that it's finished means that all of the sins that had ever been committed and all those that ever would be committed have now been set aside. They have been, uh, we would say, paid for by his work on the cross, by his spiritual death on the cross. And then at that time, of course, he dismisses his spirit and he dies physically. He will be taken down from the cross and buried. And for Christianity, we then have three days in which our Lord remains in the grave. But he doesn't stay in the grave. He rises again. He's resurrected. And it's certainly not difficult for us to say that Christianity, that faith, is the only faith in the world that ever has been and, of course, ever will be that ever has a risen Savior, the person who represents to us our faith, but he doesn't remain dead. The leaders of other cults and other religions, of course, those humans die and they remain in the grave. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not remain in the grave. And so he had told his disciples to remember him, remember his work on the cross by frequently, frequently eating this meal in which we take of the unleavened bread, the, the wafer, and also the cup. And so tonight, as we prepare to take the uh, Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, we should be thinking, first of all, of the unleavened bread and our Lord's sinless perfection as he lived his life, which allowed him to be qualified to go to the cross. The analogy of his sinless perfection is that of the unblemished lamb. And then, of course, the cup, as I've stated, is the representation of his spiritual death on the cross. And all that occurs during those three hours and the resultant then opportunity for us to believe in his finished sacrificial work on the cross. And so this evening, as we participate together, these should be our thoughts. It should be our concentration. I'll ask Scott Craig if he would please give thanks for the, the bread just as soon as we've had just a few seconds of spiritual preparation for you. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And you have just a few seconds to prepare spiritually for the communion table. Let's bow our heads in prayer. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Move out.
detail forward march mark time march detail halt center face Ready, seats. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hal Hagemeyer will give thanks for the cup. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Move out. Detail. Forward. March. Mark time. March. Detail. Halt. Center. Face. seats in the same manner after supper our Lord took the cup and after he had given thanks he said this cup 
is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this ceremony, this opportunity to remember the work of your Son, our Savior, on the cross. We pray, Father, as we take the elements, the bread and the cup, that we truly appreciate their meaning. And that the reason we do this is that we won't just simply appreciate it, but then our, live our lives worthy of what our Savior has done for us. We ask for your blessing on the continuation of our service this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the singing of uh, While I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Thank you, Nancy, for playing for us tonight. Also, thank you, Hal, Debbie, and Larry, and Mike, and Scott. Appreciate the uh, assistance tonight and our communion service. On the front of our cover tonight, you'll see, again, uh, we have a representation of General Washington and the crossing of the Delaware. But... Let me read as sort of an intro to what we'll be doing tonight, and hopefully you have your Bibles. Romans 5, 1 through 5. And then we'll talk a little history. After we've done that, we'll come back to our passage. Romans 5, 1 through 5. One of the uh, emphasis tonight on tonight's message is going to be hope and how we may have hope, not just actually we'll see two hopes tonight. And as we are observing that, we'll see that uh, not always does hope come without adversity. As a matter of fact, we are blessed, according to our passage and according to the Apostle James, by adversity. So let's read James or Romans 5 beginning in verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace this favored position in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And as we begin verse 3, the author Paul draws our attention to something. He says, and not only that, and not that alone. So, He actually separates these two parts of the passage. And not that alone. But we also, my New King James Version says, glory. But it's the same word for rejoice that we saw a little while ago. But we also rejoice in tribulations. 
knowing that tribulation produces, works, brings about perseverance. Probably a better word there is endurance. We would probably understand that a little bit better today. We don't use perseverance as much. So, knowing that tribulation works, produces, brings about endurance. And endurance, and the verb is implied, produces, brings about character. And character, again, the verb being implied, brings about or produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Why? Why does hope not disappoint? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this marvelous passage. There are wonderful truths here tonight. We could mine these for days. But we pray, Father, that we would grasp the essential truths tonight, particularly as it relates to hope. We also pray, Father, that we'll see the remarkable circumstances in the early history of our nation and the hope that allowed us to have those early Americans bring this nation into being. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In 1776, in December, our nation was struggling. It was struggling mightily, as a matter of fact, for its independence. And as a matter of fact, in December of 1776, the prospects were dim. And they were dim for many reasons. Uh, First of all, militarily, conditions uh, were not positive. Uh, Back then, many of those who served, served almost willingly. They may have had a contract, but many, uh, as soon as the contracts were over, of course, would go back to the farm, go back to their homes. And at the end of December, many of those uh, contracts, uh, agreements that individual soldiers had with the with the uh, colonies, with the new fledgling uh, nation, were going to expire, and they were going home. There had also been a lack of ammunition. There was a problem with clothing, as you may remember. Uh, during this particular winter, many were without shoes, wrapping their feet with rags. Food could even be uh, at a premium. Certainly clothing. And while the winter overall to that point had not been real bad, towards the end of November and getting into December, the the, uh, weather changed. And so uh, things were difficult, not only in their resources and what they had, but also as far as the weather was concerned. However, General George Washington, in the midst of many doubts, and it was during the month of, uh, during the fall period, as he retreated south, and we'll trace his steps here in a moment, the provisional government, the government that we had in the the 13 colonies at that time, were meeting in the capital at that time, was in Philadelphia. 
And as George Washington proceeded south with the British following him, and there was a reason why he was retreating south towards Philadelphia, because he wanted to keep the British between him and the capital. And as he retreated south, the members of the uh, our Congress decided it would be prudent for them to evacuate the capital. And so they did. They departed. They left Philadelphia going in various directions. And as they departed, they sent a message to George Washington and said, essentially, George, you've got it. Your decisions will stand for the government. We're going to be out of pocket for a little while. And so, essentially, General Washington was not only making decisions for the military, but he now was making decisions uh, for the government. But let's review some of the things that had occurred just prior to that. And also, let's see uh, how or why George Washington on the evenings, well, actually the evenings in December, beginning early in December and working his way down towards Christmas, had strong hope that not only would they survive as a military, but this nation would survive. George Washington, even in the midst of many doubts, never lost hope. Hope and rejoicing. The Battle of Trenton, December the 25th and 26th, 1776. What are the events leading up to this night? Well, earlier in the year, as a matter of fact, in March of 1776, George Washington and the small army that they had was congregated in Massachusetts around Boston Harbor. And they held the high ground above the, uh, the harbor of Boston where the British were. They had just recently received several cannon, matter of fact, quite a few cannon, and they placed them on the heights around Boston. And the last place that they occupied was uh, Dorchester Heights. If I, was, if I wasn't from Boston, I'd say Dorchester, but it's uh, Dorchester Heights, something like that. And they began to... Uh, rain artillery shells down on Boston, on the uh, where the British were in the the center of Boston, center of Boston Harbor here. Well, after a while, a few days, uh, it occurred to the British, and I think it occurred to them early on, that this was an untenable position to be in. They decided that they would need to attack out from Boston and try to take some of these heights and maybe clear the heights, but. The night that they were supposed to do this, they had horrible weather. And horrible weather was essentially um, predicted by them, what, to what degree they could predict it, for the next couple of days. And they decided that it might even be better for them to depart. And so they do. The British, and this is another look at the harbor, so you can see that it was difficult back then to get into the harbor. And it was difficult for them to get out. It took them probably two or three weeks to load their soldiers and finally sail from Boston Harbor. 
And as George Washington on the heights here above Boston watched them depart, many of those in Boston and around were celebrating and partying because the British were leaving. But the story goes that George Washington stood up here and watched the fleet sail out of sight. And the belief at that time was that the British were sailing to Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, up to Canada. It wasn't Canada at the time, but the northern portion of their uh, of the possessions that they had here in um, uh, the New World. And as George Wash, as General Washington watched them depart, he said, "I do not believe." that they are going to Nova Scotia. I don't believe they're going to Halifax. He said they would miss a great opportunity if they didn't go from Boston south to New York. And that's precisely where they did go. The British sailed down the coast, and it took them a while. They they didn't sail directly down there because this was March. This occurred in March when the British departed. And Washington... Uh, in the month of April and May, moved his army down to New York and actually established positions in and around Manhattan and also on Long Island. And in June of 1776, the British sail into New, uh, New York Harbor and start unloading in and around uh, Long Island. And it's not long before they have somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 British and German Hessian troops uh, offloaded and ready for battle on Long Island. This certainly was many more than George Washington had. He had 10,000 up in Boston, but he left some there to, to fortify that area. And so he moved south, and estimates are that he had somewhere in the vicinity of 6,000 men as he tried to fortify his position. Well, the it didn't take long for uh, the British to attack, and of course they pushed George Washington back into the uh, the southwestern corner at Brooklyn Heights, Brooklyn Brooklyn Heights, and uh, as they retreated and back into their emplacements, the fortifications that they had, the the British decided to stop the attack, dig in, and then they would continue the attack the next morning. Well, on the evening of August, it's now August the 29th, on the evening of August the 29th, George Washington and the 6,000 men he had with him, he decided that this, he, he did not want to stay there and take the British on at that point. He knew the chances of losing was great because not only was he uh, certainly facing the uh, the ground forces, but the British could very easily come in from behind him with their ships and shell him as well. And so he decided that night, decided before that night, but the night was the plan to ferry all of his men off of Brooklyn Heights and across the Hudson River. And 
many people just did not think that could possibly happen first of all he's got horses he's got artillery he's got his the cannons that he needs to take he has a lot of ammunition some might say well we can at least just save the uh, the army the men well the fact is without the ammunition without the the artillery uh, it would be very difficult and so he had a regiment a regiment from Massachusetts that were uh, had worked in whale boats and worked in uh, uh, as uh, fishermen and were superb upon uh, on the water and they came down with a lot of boats a regiment a regimental sized unit and they ferried George Washington they transported them off of Long Island that night uh, over to uh, the western shore on the other side of the Hudson and it really was a remarkable feat no you know, had no idea how many they would actually be able to save. But before the night was over, they had saved every one of the forces that they could extract who were not um, left behind to uh, provide some some security. But they also saved their food, their ammunition, the cannon, the horses, everything they brought with them. But they weren't able to completely conclude the uh, the event that night and George Washington knew that it would probably extend into the morning and they would be seen by the British but an unusual heavy fog moved in that night and it didn't lift until mid-morning George Washington was the last one one of the last ones to get on the boats to leave and as he, as he was leaving the fog was beginning to lift and they were able to move all of their forces out, off of Long Island away from the British uh, now starts the long retreat. There are several engagements up around New York, but George Washington begins this long uh, retreat as he fights his way in front of the British, and the British are pursuing him. Cornwallis is pursuing him because he believes that if he can uh, fix him in place and fight him, the war is going to be over. But George Washington continues to move backwards, just remaining uh, uh, at reach uh, far enough so that he's not in contact and he can't be fixed in place. And finally, as he gets down towards the end of uh, the end of November, the middle of November, the weather changes and it becomes very bitter, uh, cold and rainy and snowy. And he moves back down here and finally comes to the Delaware River. Philadelphia, you can see, is down here. And he crosses early in December, around the 2nd of December. He crosses the Delaware River. And when he crosses the Delaware River, Cornwallis is right behind him. But what he does is he scatter, he fans the army out, grabs all of the boats that they can find, and they take all the boats across the river, and all the ones that they can't take, they destroy. So the Cornwallis, when he arrives, has no means of of crossing the river. He would like to cross the river, but he can see it's going to be difficult. At that point, he decides with the in, uh, the weather worsening and it being uh, uh, unseasonable, I guess you could say, for war, he decides that they would go into winter quarters. And so he has 20,000 men, and he begins to disperse them. Some he disperses back north, some he sends south, he moves a little bit more to the east. But right here at a place called Trenton, he assigns that 
to the Hessians, the German mercenaries that have come with him, uh, with Cornwallis. And there's a possibility that they would have at that location, somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 4,000 to 6,000 men. But the German commander, the general officer, decides that Trenton is not really large enough. There's maybe a hundred houses there to, for, general, uh, for winter quarters for them, for all of them. So he leaves two regiments here, and then he moves further south and takes up positions uh, much further south, on the, uh, still on the eastern side of the Delaware River. And that brings us to the setting for our uh, story tonight. It's the middle of December, probably December the 10th or so, and George Washington is watching his army now, which is dwindled from 6,000 to about 3,000. And they're across the river in their, in their winter quarters, but of course George Washington isn't really in winter quarters. They're watching the river because they're concerned whether the British will try to cross the river. And it comes to them, uh, by way of uh, their intelligence and information, that the British are no longer seeking an opportunity to cross. And so George Washington at that time decides that really their only hope is to somehow turn the tide. Because in the United States, which we know in July of 1776, we have declared our independence. But since the Declaration of Independence and just a little bit before that, there's been really almost nothing but defeat after defeat after defeat, or at least withdrawal in front of the British. And as I said, the prospects are not real strong for any kind of a victory in the near future. But he decides that he needs a victory. The, this, these 13 colonies, this fledgling young United States needs a boost in morale. And he decides that he can catch the British by surprise. And he thinks the place where he can catch them by surprise is right here in Trenton. He knows that the, uh, the Germans who are there, the Hessians, are not, uh, uh, would not be an easy force to defeat. He knows that they are battle-hardened. He knows that they are seasoned. They're experienced. And they have a great reputation. But he believes that if he can gain an advantage, and the advantage would be for him to surprise them, and hopefully overwhelm their guards, the guard units that they have out, that maybe they would be able to get themselves into position and defeat the Hessians here in Trenton. Well, it's a bold plan, and one of the reasons that it's uh, certainly bold is that to even begin the night is going to be difficult. He wants to make the attack at dawn, and he believes that dawn for him is going to be somewhere in the vicinity of 5 o'clock. And so they've, plan they've made their plans, and once more they call for the, the fishermen of the Massachusetts Regiment, uh, and happens to be his name was Colonel Glover. Colonel Glover's men come down with uh, with boats, uh, 
larger boats. They were a sort of ferries, we would call them, but they were flat-bottom boats. And then also sort of whale boats. And the, the larger boats that Washington wants and needs are for the cannon and for horses. And, you know, we very often don't hear of this, but they ferried quite a few cannon across the river that night, as well as the horses that were going to pull the cannon, as well as the horses that Washington and some of his other officers were, were going to be riding. But it, was a, but it was a significant problem because the water was full, and we often hear this, the water was full of floating ice flows, icebergs we might call them, smaller ones. And there weren't just a few of them. I'll give me a picture here. Many of you have seen this picture. Okay, let's see. I failed to put that one in. Here's another. Here's the picture of George Washington on the banks. Uh, the picture that we have on the front of our uh, bulletin. I want to thank Kathy Haley for putting our bulletin together tonight. But the water, you can dim the lights a little bit there, please, Scott. Yeah. Maybe even another one, because I don't think we'll need any more here. Yeah. The water out here was really, uh, really dangerous. And uh, they took it slow. Uh, Colonel Knox was doing the, uh, the loading for them that night. They started as early as they could. But because of the weather, it was raining. It changed to sleet. Pretty soon it was sleet and snow. Uh, the, the traffic was just, uh, as you can see here, it was extremely hazardous. Uh, it was icy. And moving the cannon down to the bank, moving it aboard these ferries, and, of course, the horses were... Uh, absolutely uh, they were an absolute uh, nightmare trying to get them aboard the ferries and getting them over but as George Washington would later say the providence of God was with us because it took us longer than we desired but we were able to load everything that we wanted and we were able to move them to the far shore and it wasn't until 3 o'clock in the morning that they finally had everything across moving east west to east across the uh, the Delaware River. And it was at that time that they started south. They started their movement from their current location at McConkie's Ferry here, came across and started to move down. This is known as the River Road, and then this is going to be the High Road, as it was called. And George Washington has actually split his forces uh, in, into... He'll, he will split his forces into four, but he initially has them in three parts. Two of the parts come down on the western side of the Delaware River. One of them is to cross at a ferry down here and come up and seal the bottom part of Trenton. Trenton. Another part was to go down further and to seal further south so that his plan is not only to seal the Hessians in Trenton, but to seal any reinforcements that might come up from the south. Well, as the, as you can tell from the, the sound of the weather, these two forces were unable to cross the river. Uh, the, the, the force that was right here got partially across 
but he, it was uh, impossible for his getting for him to get his entire force across, and so he pulled back and just supported with his cannon from this side of the river the attack. The other force that went down was just simply unable to cross. Well, George Washington, of course, doesn't know this during the uh, the middle of the attack, and he's after they get across. They're moving down, and he splits his forces here with General Green taking approximately uh, four regiments and going on what was known as the Upper Road, and General Sullivan taking three regiments and going south on the Southern Road. And, of course, back then, dividing your forces now becomes a real challenge for unity, the unity of the command and how to coordinate movement. But... Uh, George Washington thought as he looked at the distance that they were going to be traveling, he thought that more than likely it's going to take Sullivan about as long as it's going to take Green to get here. And he simply told those two generals, when you get into position, you know, deploy your men and commence the attack. And the other force will simply attack as soon as we hear you attacking or we'll hurry to get there. As it turns out, they have arrived here at about the same time. Sullivan arrives just a little bit early. And we hear these stories about uh, the Hessians, the German forces that were there, how they'd been drinking all night and partying, and uh, they were probably mostly drunk and uh, senseless. But the fact is that the reports that were later given by the, uh, the Hessians, uh, the colonels, and actually the people who... Uh, who were writing about the actual battle said that the Germans as well as several of the, of the British uh, organizations thought that there would be an attack they didn't know when it was going to come they didn't anticipate it on Christmas they didn't anticipate it that late in December they actually thought that George Washington probably would have attacked earlier and that for the most part the Germans who were there had spent a great deal of time patrolling and watching but they really did not think that the Americans would attack on that night on Christmas Day because the attack starts uh, on the night uh, on Christmas Day and so the attack is going to be on Christmas night and the next day so on the 25th and 26th and they also looked at the river and said there's just no way anybody could possibly cross this river and so while they were alert and they did have uh, guard units, companies up to the north and to the, uh, to the west here, to the south, they simply were not expecting it. And you know, sometimes uh, those of us in the military, when we talk about having, the, uh, uh, having surprise on our side, having... Uh, the uh, the element of surprise on our side. People often think that it's just you know drop your hands, drop your mouth, oh you know just wide open surprise. You know I had no idea. Well, surprise can come in many different ways, and sometimes it's just at the moment of the attack or where the attack commences. And so while the Germans had expected something. 
They simply didn't expect it that night. But they still had their guards out. And Sullivan moves down, and he's the, one of the first ones to encounter the, uh, the guard companies that are out. And he begins the attack, and his part of the attack, and by the way, uh, to describe the movement, I don't have the time really to describe it, but again, it was a night that was uh, just inhuman. Uh, it was cold. It was windy. Uh, many of uh, the American forces didn't have shoes. Their feet were wrapped. And some, if you can believe it, were actually marching barefoot. Now, that takes probably a pretty hardy soul to uh, traverse this distance. And the distance from McConnell's Ferry here, down here, was nine miles. And nine miles, it took them uh, about uh, an hour and a half from three o'clock to get just to this rise right here. And that was going up, not real steep, but at least an incline. And from there on, things moved a little easier, but the weather didn't break for them. And again, it's the middle of the night. It's reasonably dark, but as they move down here, uh, they lose two casualties, two casualties from exposure. Two of their, they lose two forces. They die from exposure that night. The rest of them make it all the way down here. And as they're preparing to start the attack, again, uh, George Washington wanted to be there at 5 in the morning. Well, they don't arrive at 5 in the morning. They need three additional hours, and it's not until 8 o'clock that both forces are finally in position. Sullivan moves into position and his responsibility is not only to seal the eastern the western side and to push through the city the town but he's also supposed to slip down to the south and seal off this river even though general washington thinks he has forces to the south you know it's a, it's a, a smart commander who realizes that you may not always uh, everything may not be going quite as planned. And so Sullivan slips down to the right here and seals the, the escape. And actually, they don't get it sealed right away. Green, coming down here, uh, Washington is moving with Green. And so he's really in command of the forces and simply allowing Green to control what we would probably call his division, but he's got several regiments. And what George Washington does is he seals to the east as well as attacking south into the city. There are two main streets in the city, into the city, to the... This is a better look at what was going on. As you can see, uh, some of the high ground as they moved down here, here's where they split. Sullivan coming along the lower road, the river road, and Green coming down in this direction. And the name of the commander of the British forces that was left, he was, one, he was the senior regimental commander. There's three regiments that are there. And his name is Colonel Rawl. He has somewhere, this says 100, uh, 1,200. Uh, but most accounts say that it's a little higher than that. It's probably around 1,400. But Rawl is asleep, as most of them are. Most of the, the, the German forces have really been, are fairly fatigued from what they've been trying to do up to that time. They simply did not expect an attack that night. And so while the guard companies out are out, the, uh, most of the, of the three regiments are asleep. 
the forces aren't in position until 8 o'clock. And uh, as Green is deploying his forces to the north here, on the north side, they hear Sullivan encounter the guard companies on the western side. And Sullivan begins to move through. And so at that point, uh, Colonel Knox, who was the artillery officer for General Washington, sets up his... Um, his cannons, his artillery pieces, along two two streets. One of them is King Street and the other one is Queen Street so that he can fire straight down the streets because he knows that if the Hessians form, they're going to try to move up through the streets. That simply what were the tactics at that time. And so he deploys his artillery in that way. Um, this is a picture of General Washington at the Battle of Trenton. Uh, we had the photographers there, of course. And this is a map, uh, a, a Hessian sketch of what occurred during the battle. And it's one of the more accurate uh, sketches we think that we have. And you can see here, this is where General Green and General Washington were. They uh, were up on the northern side. This is King Street. This is Queen Street. And... Two of the, the two of the regiments deployed, and it, I'll show you how this advances. It may be a little difficult for you to see, but one regiment deployed along King Street, another regiment deployed here along Queen Street, and the third one deployed back here along Queen Street in reserve. Well, as Sullivan moves in here, here are Sullivan's forces. As he moves in and starts putting pressure from the from the uh, west, and he slips one of his regiments down here as well to to block this area, this regiment turns to face him, but the regiment really does not get deployed. They try to deploy, but it was very difficult for them to deploy, and Sullivan moves through here rather quickly, pushing the uh, the three regiments off to the east. Before he actually pushes through there, they do deploy one regiment, Rawls regiment deploys here, the other one deploys here, but Knox has deployed his artillery and he's firing down the streets. And even though the Germans formed and tried to move up the streets, they were simply raked by the artillery. And then, of course, the uh, the U.S. forces, the colonial forces moved into the into these uh, into this area around the houses and they really had them at a disadvantage they fell back raw orders them to fall back hoping to reform in this area and attack again but they're very quickly outflanked George Washington slips regiments off to the east and gets behind them and so they're actually now being attacked from three different sides and about that time, Colonel uh, Rawl is mortally wounded and falls, and they give up. They decide that surrendering is probably um, the better part of valor here. And it really was a, a rather uh, quick battle. It all happened rather quickly. And uh, one of the, the things that I left out, one of the parts that I left out about this was as uh, they were moving down the road. This critical thing, I should have remembered it. Uh, there were uh, 
George Washington encountered several units that were there, uh, individuals saying that the uh, the Hessians, while they were not out patrolling, they did have their guard companies out. And at about the time that George Washington realized, I'm not going to be able to get there at five o'clock. It's probably going to be more like an, uh, a mid-morning attack. There was some thought that maybe the attack should be called off, but he decided no. We're going on with the attack. This is the attack that must succeed. And I believe that if we can get into position, the plan is such and the conditions are such that we will catch them by surprise. And so for him, he had this strong hope, this driving hope they would in fact succeed. Uh, this is another picture here of the battle of the uh, of George Washington's forces charging down here, moving into position, taking over the uh, the uh, artillery pieces that the, the Haitians were trying to use, and then this is the surrender, the capture of the Haitians in Trenton. Um, George Washington taking the surrender from Colonel Rawls here, and. Um, it was really a uh, a stunning success during the the uh, the actual attack only two Ameri oh, excuse me only four americans were wounded two enlisted men and two officers one of the officers that was wounded was james madison matter of fact he was almost mortally wounded he was shot in the shoulder and the shot actually uh, severed an artery but there was a surgeon there who was able to get him down and pinch off that artery, and they saved his life. So uh, the, uh, the casualties on the German side are not quite as clear. Some say there were 22 uh, actual killed, and then somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 200 wounded. Not certain of that, but... Uh, George Washington takes over 1,000 prisoners here. Some were able to escape to the south and to the, uh, to the east before they could actually seal them off. But it was an absolutely remarkable victory. And later on, uh, in the writings of um, many of the early Americans, those who had either observed it, like George Washington did, and then others who uh, listened to the reports that what had occurred there, they came away with the understanding, and of course George Washington very often said this, that it was the providential will of God that that victory be given them. And that victory gave the uh, very young United States, less than six months old, the, the motivation and the encouragement that they needed to press on. Uh, to continue to fight the battle. Others later on said that to them it was a sign that this nation was divinely meant to occur. This battle right here at Trenton. And so uh, I think those are all r remarkable comments. Well, that's just a brief look at our at the battle. Let's go back to our text of scripture. Let's go back to Romans. Romans 5. <clears throat> Romans 5, beginning in 
verse 1. And hopefully what we'll see here as we as we observe this tonight is George Washington never lost hope. Uh, and there's something about our hope as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded here in Romans 5.1 that I think are important for us to observe tonight. As we finish this year and begin the next. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, and our word here for justified means having been declared righteous. And so we're talking, Paul is writing to believers, and this is one of the things that we often have to remember as we're reading uh, the New Testament, is the writers are inevitably talking to believers. And he says, therefore, having been justified. And it's always wonderful to look at these, the actual vocabulary. Having been justified. How are we justified? Well, the verb helps us because it's an aorist passive. It means that we receive the action. We are declared righteous by God at the moment of salvation. It's not anything that we do ourselves. We don't declare ourselves righteous. And there's nothing that we can do that can make us righteous. The only way that we can become righteous is by receiving the imputation of God's righteousness. And at that moment, we're declared righteous. And how are we declared righteous? It says, by faith. And the translation here probably is, out of faith, because of the faith that we've had. Not of works, but of faith. Then it says, therefore having been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace. And again, the verb is uh, instrument uh, is um, essential for us to understand. It's a present tense. And it means that we keep on. It's continuous action. So we continue to have this harmony. Why? Because we are now sons of God. We are in the family. And it says we have peace. I think maybe a better translation there for us to understand is that we have harmony with God. Uh, earlier in Romans, hold your finger here and go back to Romans 1, verse 18. In Romans 1, 18, Romans 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so those who are unbelievers, those who are suppressing the truth, are the recipient of divine wrath. But those who believe, this says, we have peace. We have harmony with God. And I think that that's, a, uh, that's precisely what Paul is trying to say. But it says we have harmony with God, meaning God the Father. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the Lord Jesus Christ also we have access and again the word have here is in the present tense it means continuous access see it's not just something that comes and goes we have the opportunity for continuous access and what is this access the word is actually used of someone who would approach a monarch so we would we have an audience 
with a monarch. We can approach the monarch. And that's what this means. This means that we have access. We can approach God. We have this continuous audience with the Father. So we have this access. And again, it's by means of our faith, not our works, but by our faith, what we believe. And then it says uh, we have this continuous ongoing access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Into this grace, we sometimes can get a little lost in the words, but the grace here uh, is another word for favor. And we have a favored position with God. This, uh, his, The subject, the conditions here, provide a very favorable, gracious position for us. So, in this favored position in which we stand. And the word stand, again, is not the present tense, but it's a perfect tense. And it it brings to mind, or it tells us, it instructs us, that in the past, sometime in the past, we took this stand. And we took that stand with the results that those results continue right into present time. And so, what do we have? We took a stand at the moment that we believe. That's the idea here. And it's not by works. We didn't take the stand, but we are allowed, I guess you could say, to take that stand. And we took it in the past with results that continue into the present. So, we stand, in which we stand, and then it says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So these first two verses are talking to us as believers. The fact that we are declared righteous, the fact that we have this access, the fact that we have a stand, we're in position, and then it says and we rejoice in that stand, in that those that favored position in the hope and when we talk about hope, of course, most of us know that the uh, the Greek word for hope, elpis here, is not a hope that we're not certain. Um, we just wish that it would occur, but it's confident expectation that we are we have confident expectation of what it says of the glory of God, and the the glory here is a reference to our future glory in eternity our resurrection body, our eternal life that's going to take us into glory, glorification. And so the first two verses talk to us about our hope, our confident expectation of our future glorification, where we're going to be in the future. Why? Because we had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And at that moment, we receive the imputation of righteousness, eternal life, and we are declared righteous. But then as I read this and through, the, uh, through our scripture reading, I said, as we begin verse 3, Paul says, as if that's not enough, there's something more. Well, what is this something more? Verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory or 
when I read this, I said it's the same word for rejoice. We also rejoice, and I think Paul is making a parallel here. He says, we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces or brings about endurance. And endurance brings about, we could say, approved character. And I think uh, the New American Standard Bible says proven character. And that, that gives you the idea of what this is. The word there for character is actually the word that means having been tested or proved. We would say tempered. So we have this character that's been proven it's been tested. How's it been tested? It's been tested by tribulation, adversity, hardship. And that brings about this tempered character. And the approved character, or this tempered uh, character, produces hope. And, verse 5 says, and we know that this hope is uh, confident expectation. Now, this confident expectation does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our, in our hearts. All right. What is the contrast, or what is the parallel here between the two hopes? Well, the first hope that we have is the confident expectation in our resurrection body, the confident expectation that we will someday be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to talk about that in Romans 8. But that is the hope for eternity. Well, beginning in verse 3, we have another hope. And what hope is that? That hope is in tribulation. So we're no longer now having hope in our glorified state, but we're having hope in time, in our current life. And so this second hope is not the expectation of glorification but it's the hope the expectation that we will grow in faith grow in character through what through tribulations and through adversity so that when we get to the end it says so we go from one hope and you could say that it's you know the the hope for glorification i think that's right and not only that but we also rejoice in the tribulations, the adversity, the hardships that we experience on a daily basis, knowing that that tribulation produces endurance, and the endurance produces character, and the character produces hope. What? Well, hope that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ during this life will succeed in our Christian life that we will uh, find ourselves to be approved, that we will find ourselves to be in the position, as uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Hold your finger here for one minute. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2.12. This is a marvelous passage. It's one that's not always easily understood. But 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse... Let me start uh, in verse 11. This is Paul saying in 2 Timothy 
2.11. This is a faithful saying. For if we as believers died with him, this is our what we would call positional sanctification, we, are, we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And we'll just leave it right there. That's the idea. The idea is that during our temporal life, God is going to allow certain tribulation, certain affliction, certain hardship, certain adversities in our lives. But those adversities are designed to create endurance. And endurance, a proven, a solid character, a tempered character. And from that tempered character, we have hope. Hope for what? That we will not only endure, but that we will reign with him. That we will be winners in the Christian life. And upon what do we base this? Paul finishes this passage back in Romans, back in Romans 5, by saying that one of the ways we have, the reason that we have this, Romans 5, 5, now this confident expectation, this hope that we have, that we will be rulers, that we will reign with him, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so as we are here tonight as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit who indwells us makes this love of God real to us. It's poured into us. Uh, It's something that fills us, God's love. And how do we understand this love? Where do we find this love? Well, we find it in the Word of God. As we learn and grow in our spiritual life, as we learn more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we learn more about uh, our Father and what He's provided for us, we see this love that's been poured out. And so this expectation that we will not only succeed in our spiritual lives, that we can succeed, and we are being uh, proven and tempered uh, by the adversities, by the difficulties and the hardships that we face, that we will be successful, that we will be obedient, and that someday we will be able to stand in front of our Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, so that we may someday reign with him. Now, what does this mean to us tonight? Well, many of us, as we you know, work our way through our lives, we hope that we would not have hardship, that we would not have adversities. But I know that I could probably start anywhere in the, the congregations here tonight and ask, and we would probably all be able to give hardships and adversities and difficulties that we experience. Well, that is not unusual. And as we read this text, in a way it's a blessing. Because God knew about these adversities and these hardships in eternity past, and he's provided the solutions for them. But not only that, but they are blessings. They are blessings because they produce this hope this confident expectation that someday we will reign with our Savior 
not only will we have a glorified body, not only will we have a resurrection body, but our position will be such that we will be able to rule and reign with him. And so I cannot promise you in the new year that you will not have any any adversity and you will not have hardships and you won't have difficulties. As a matter of fact, you probably will. And you might say, along with James, and James 1-2, count it all joy, brethren, when you have those temptations and adversities. And it's only human for us to think when they occur, why me, Lord? Or we think that uh, life is just too difficult, or we certainly want them to stop. But in reality, those hardships and difficulties can be turned into blessings. Just like the marvelous hope, the confidence that General Washington had against all hope and the adversity and the, uh, the very difficult campaign he had uh, these, those many years ago, over 200 years ago, on Christmas, Christmas Day and the next morning. But he had hope for success. And not only was he successful, but many believed that this was the turning point in, an, in the war very early on that eventually brought them, brought us uh, our independence. And so we should look forward to in the new year. Maybe it's difficult to say we should look forward to adversity and hardship and tribulation. But we should have the confident expectation that we can encounter it, we can face it, and we can pass any of the tests. We can use all of the assets that God has given us so that we may please him that we might end up with this tempered character and someday rule and reign with him. Not only having hope in our resurrection body, but hope in a Christian life that brings us truly those eternal rewards that we should all um, hope, have confident expectation that we will someday receive. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this marvelous opportunity not only to celebrate a new year here in the United States, but we also have the opportunity to see how our lives really are laid out for us, that we should expect adversity, we should expect hardships. And in a way, it's those hardships that truly provide for us the, the glorious future that is there. We pray for our nation. We know, Father, that these are certainly trying times. We pray that we would be good citizens, that we would not look for a place to hide, but that we would try to have an impact, an impact by way of our spiritual lives and also by uh, participating in the, uh, the national scene by uh, being involved with the events that are happening in our local area, our local government. We pray, Father, for uh, the church this evening. Uh, those of us who are here, we pray that uh, we will have uh, an enjoyable time as we continue our celebration. We also pray, Father, for the future of this congregation as we look for a new home, a new home where we might uh, might worship you. We pray, Father, that we will continue to be able to wake, make the, the wise decisions, that, we'll, that we will, as a congregation will be unified and that we will have uh, confidence 
this hope, this confident expectation that you will provide for us. But also like at this time to thank you for the food that we're going to have tonight that has been prepared. And I thank you for those who have prepared the food. We pray, Father, that you would bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd all please rise. It's probably the best time to sing Old Lang Syne.